I suppose if we polled the church, there would be a large majority of us that are going through some form of difficulty. Uh, I'm not certain about each of your lives, but I know a lot of you, and I know that uh, many of you are, are facing challenging circumstances. Trials, we would describe them to be. Um, they would include serious health concerns, family or marriage crisis of some kind, challenging circumstances at work, uh, financial difficulty, whatever it would be, if we were to poll the church, most of us would be facing something serious. The inevitability of hardship is well documented in Scripture and in life. You can't live too long without experiencing it. Um, when we were back in chapter 1 of the book of James, verses 2 through 4, I showed you the biblical view of trials, if you remember. Trials are specifically designed by God to bring about Christ-likeness, to accomplish His redemptive purposes in your life and mine. And so trying to avoid trials and hardship after entering the Christian life is like trying to avoid getting wet after entering a swimming pool. It is not possible. Uh, Jesus, Peter, Paul, James, many New Testament authors and Old Testament authors say that we should expect suffering and difficulty throughout life. Jesus said this in John 16, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So it's in difficulty that God does something special. God does something in the course of our uh, challenging circumstances that He cannot do or accomplish outside of those circumstances. He uses them to accomplish His purposes. You remember how James opened this letter, right? He, he did so with the counsel to be patient in trials. And now he's closing the letter. We, here we are, uh, almost at the end of this letter, and he's concluding the letter with the very same encouragement. Be patient in trials. Being patient in trials must be an important quality in the Christian life. And I think the way we can interpret this is that James says it demonstrates the authenticity of our faith when we can be patient in our circumstances. So today, I want to show you from our text in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, that he gives us three ways that we should respond to suffering and trials, and three reasons to respond that way. So three ways that we should respond to suffering and trials that we're going through, and three reasons that we should respond that way. So if you have a Bible, open it with me if you would, and turn to James chapter 5, I'm going to read for you verses 7 through 11. James 5, verses 7 through 11. It says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful." So I want to show you here from these important verses 
Now, there are three ways that we should respond to the challenging circumstances we face and three reasons that we should respond that way. Okay? So let's look at these. First, how should we respond to suffering? I want you to notice something that's significant. If you haven't noticed it already, you've already sung about it and heard it read this morning, but let me point it out to you anyways, uh, that each of the ways that James says we ought to respond to suffering and trials have one common motivation. Did you see it? The Lord Jesus is, is returning. He's coming back. And so this should impact how we think about our circumstances. Since Jesus is coming back, James says, let's practice patience. Let's be patient because Jesus is coming soon. James uses the illustration of a farmer patiently waiting on the rains to communicate, I think, two important truths. They are this. The first one is that rain causes the planted seed to germinate, right? We know this. That the growing season is a good picture of the difficulties of the Christian life. Our lives are a process of sanctification. That is a process of becoming like Jesus. And God takes all of us through these things and includes suffering. Part of the process of becoming a Christian, of being a Christian, is going through difficult times. God sends us through these things. As all farmers must wait on the rains, at least in, in James's day, they didn't have intricate uh, irrigation systems. They had to wait on the rains, so Christians must wait on the rains of sanctification that God brings into our lives to accomplish his purposes in us. So that, as James says there in verse 7, we will produce precious fruit. The same kind of things that farmers wait on. So that, this is an important truth that we must get into our heads as we find ourselves in the middle of difficult circumstances. To be patient because God is up to something. You may not know particularly what it is. You may, but you may not. But we must wait because God is doing something. Um, and the reason we wait is because it takes time for precious fruit to develop in your life. Wouldn't it be nice... I've thought about this occasionally, thought about it again this morning. Wouldn't it be nice as once you were regenerated, once you came to Christ by faith, you woke up the next morning mature. Wouldn't that be awesome? Unfortunately, that's not the way it is. Uh, God has to take us through things to develop Christ-likeness in us. And this is what James is talking about. But there is a secret of patient endurance uh, when the going gets tough, and it is what James is saying. God's going to produce some precious fruit, so just wait and watch. See what God's going to do. You may not be able to recognize it in the middle of the darkness, but God is doing something, so be patient. What you just heard this morning that was read from Genesis was a uh, record of Abraham's patience. He was promised when he was a young man that he would be the father of the promised one. How long did he wait? <laughs> it says until he was a hundred. He had to wait a long time for the precious fruit in his life to develop. And he had to go through all sorts of challenging circumstances before it came about. It's the same with us. Here's the second important truth that I think that we learned from this illustration of farmers. Hard times... Hard times make us wish for Christ's return, right? Is that the case in your life? 
You know, when, when you're going through all sorts of deep and dark things and you really don't see a way out, have you ever just said to yourself, I wish Jesus would come back. <laughs> I wish this would just end real soon. Well, I think that's intentional. Uh, one reason that we don't hope for the return of Jesus as much as we should, I think, is because we have it too good. We have it too easy. We don't want to, the sweet by and by if we have the sweet here and now, right? I think this is one reason that God brings trials into our lives so that, that we will be weaned from this worldly comfort, these things that would take our attention off of Christ. What we need to remember as we're practicing patience in trials is that when Jesus returns, everything will be made right. Are there some things that wrong in your life right now? And I don't mean just sin, of course that, but I mean things that ought to be different. I mean, if Jesus were here leading the program, things would be different. I wouldn't be treated the way I am at work. My marriage wouldn't be the way it is. My kids would straighten up. You know, this is the reality of our existence, isn't it? Guess what happens when Jesus returns? This is all made right. This is what Jesus is going to do. And this is the wonderful thing about the return of Christ, about the promise of the return. Um, the more dire our circumstances, the more eager we will be for that great day when Jesus will return. God uses our circumstances, I think, to lift our eyes from our current circumstances, to lift our eyes from this world to the next, to the reality of Christ. On the other hand, as we learned last week, the luxurious, self-indulgent person has very little interest in leaving this life. He's got it just like he wants it now. So why would you want Christ if you have everything you have want now? So are you going through hardship and trial? What is it that's keeping your head above water, Christian? Is it uh, Fox News? Is it uh, some self-help book you've got going? What, what is it that's keeping your head, maybe ice cream, keeping your head above water? Listen, Christian, the return of Jesus is intended by God to bring you great hope and encouragement, to give you a legitimate and substantial hope for the future, to give you patience through your trial. Now, there's, here's the, the next response that James says we ought to have in going through suffering and difficulty and trial. He says there to establish your heart. You see that? Establish your heart, verse 8. Why? Because Jesus is coming. <laughs> establish your heart because Jesus is coming. It means establishing your heart means to strengthen your resolve. Bear down. Be courageous as you wait. Stay the course, no matter how difficult it might be or how discouraged you might get. So if you're about to give up, remember that the Lord is just about here, friends. Remember, help is arriving soon. Stand firm, fight temptation, hold on, keep on keeping on. Why? Because Jesus is about here. He's just about ready to show up. Do you live your life that way? Or do you live your life as if he is never coming back? James here is saying, establish your heart because Jesus is returning. The famous Greek word parousia, you may have heard it, which is translated in English coming, that you see in verses 7 and 8, is used to identify the second advent of Jesus, the second coming of Christ throughout all of the New Testament. 
And we know from our study of Scripture that there is nothing in the way. Nothing yet has to happen before Jesus can return. And so it could literally happen at any moment. It may happen before the end of this service. This should bring encouragement to us. It, it, it helps us understand why we're going through what we're doing. It gives us resolve. It strengthens our heart. It establishes our heart when we think of it as an eminent possibility. It, it changes all of our current difficulties um, into opportunities. This is an opportunity, what you're going through, not a threat. Listen to these verses that will help you clarify what I'm saying. Romans 8.18, Paul said, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Whatever you're going through is no comparison to what you're going to receive. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation or the coming of Jesus Christ. And then again, 1 Peter 5, verse 10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you, strengthen you. So, suffering is part of God's plan to establish you, to strengthen your heart, as you wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the words establish your heart is a command. Right? This is a command by James to us, his readers. Strengthen your heart, Christian. Establish your heart. And there is a tension in this command that I want to point out to you. Throughout the New Testament, um, we see believers are strengthened by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, right? I don't think any of us would say, my Christian well-being, the strength of my Christian life is up to me. No, we would all say it's up to the Holy Spirit, right? It's His work in us that causes us to be established, to be strengthened, to be faithful. And yet James here gives the command to us. He says, you, Christian, be strengthened. You go out and strengthen your soul. What we see here is a tension. It, it's an important tension. There is a responsibility laid on each and every Christian here in verse 8 by James. And this tension is between completely relying on the Holy Spirit and participating with the Holy Spirit in our Christian life. Both are necessary. It is not okay to say, let go and let God, and whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. No. We are to depend upon the Holy Spirit, but then get busy to get after it in the Christian life. You know, we, we are not to live the Christian life through laziness or by legalistic effort. And there is a beautiful, if not uncomfortable, tension here. It's the same way that the farmer doesn't just sit on his porch and say, I sure hope those apples grow well this year. 
What's he do? He prunes. He gets up at all hours of the night and makes sure they don't freeze. He sprays. He does everything necessary to produce the crop. And yet, does the farmer say, I did it. I made those apples grow. No, the farmer knows that nature, God, is responsible for the growth, but he must participate or he will have no crop. It's the same with you and me in the Christian life. We must depend upon the Holy Spirit, but work hard because if we don't, we will see no fruit. Now, the Christian must behave like the farmer. We must pray. We must study God's Word. We must attend church. We must be participants in fellowship, serving, giving, expecting God to do His divine work behind the scenes. Jesus said this in Luke 12, verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Not being lazy when he comes, but being active, so doing when he comes. Paul tried to strike this balance between depending on the Holy Spirit and working hard ourselves in Philippians chapter 2 when he said this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, but work it out. Work at it. Be strengthened. Why? Because God's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Both must happen. You must participate. So we see here, how should we respond to these difficult, trying circumstances that we all face as Christians? We must be patient. We must establish our hearts. And then look what it says next. Don't grumble. Yeah, he could have left that off. It would have been a little easier to take. Don't grumble against one another, brothers. Why do you think we ought not to grumble? What's it say at the end of the verse? Because Jesus is coming. <laughs> That's why we don't grumble. Because Jesus is coming. How would you like to be fine grumbling about your circumstances the moment Jesus shows up? Uh, yeah, yeah, about that. <laughs> no, don't grumble because Jesus is coming back. Uh, don't grumble because the judge is at the door, James says. What is grumbling? It's complaining about our circumstances or complaining that God has blessed someone else more than he's blessed me. Grumbling against other Christians, of course, is one of the best ways to disrupt God's work in your life. Best way to disrupt the, the local church. Nothing worse than a, a group of grumblers. It's been the destruction of many churches. We are most vulnerable to grumbling when? When do you think that you are most likely to grumble. When things are going great in your life? No, it's when you're going through difficulty, trial, suffering. That's why it's here in this context. Don't grumble, but establish yourself. Be patient in trial. Grumbling and complaining is prohibited by Paul and James and Jesus, but Paul in Philippians 2 verse 14, he says, don't grumble. Come flat out and makes the command. Don't grumble. Why? Because God has put you in the circumstances you're in. Guess who we're grumbling against when we grumble? We're not grumbling about you. We're not grumbling about the red light. We're not grumbling about the long line. We're grumbling about God's oversight of our circumstances. That's what we're grumbling, grumbling about. So Paul says, don't do that. 
So James says, don't do that. Trust God in your circumstances. Don't grumble about them. Trust God. The fact that Jesus could return at any moment should be caused to, to think differently. We, we must be prepared for his arrival. Peter said again, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. And what is that? That's when Jesus returns, at the end of all things. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So be prepared. Are, are we ready to see Jesus? Are we being patient? Are we establishing our hearts? Are we avoiding grumbling at any, at any cost? Are we helping each other in each of these ways? If you're ever tempted to grumble about your circumstances, here is a great chapter to read. Revelation chapter 22. It is about the Lord's return and the glory of that occasion. Read Revelation chapter 22 when you're grumbling or read it to your spouse when they're grumbling. So the parousia, that is the return or coming of the Lord, uh, is both a time of hope and a time of judgment on our works for the purpose of eternal reward. Now I want to, be, I want to clarify something here. When, when we talk about the judgment of the Lord uh, in, at his coming that, that James talks about here in verse 9, he says, uh, don't grumble against one of the rich so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door speaking of Jesus. And you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that my judgment was taken care of on Calvary. And Romans chapter 8 said, there is therefore now no condemnation. So what's he talking about? He's talking about eternal reward. So on that day, when we see Jesus, he is going to hand out eternal reward to those who've been faithful, to those who've been patient, to those who have established their hearts. Do you want to be a part of that? Blessing? Do you want to receive that kind of blessing from the Lord Jesus? Do you want to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I know you do, just like I do. And so we don't grumble. <laughs> we don't complain. We establish our hearts. We're patient. Jesus will come and reward us for being such. So let's look at the reasons we respond this way. Why do we respond the way? Besides what I've already said, because the Lord is returning. But there's more in this text. There's more motivation, more reasons to be patient, to establish your hearts, and to not grumble. Let's look at them here in verses 10, 11, and 12. It says this, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Let's think about the prophets, for example, he said. By remembering past believers, James is saying, we can gain encouragement in our struggle with any discouragement, any, any difficulty, despair. We, we remember their difficulties and remember how God sustained them. We remember Abraham and all he went through. We remember King David. Remember Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Remember all those circumstances that they were involved in. And yet God faithfully brought them through. So James saying, remember those people. If they did it, we can do it. 
One thing we need to keep in mind is that obedience to God doesn't equal an easy road or material blessings. The Bible does not teach a prosperity gospel. You can't expect God to heal your marriage because you come to Jesus. God, you can't expect God to solve your financial problems because you come to Jesus. He will sanctify those things for sure. He will use those things for your good and growth. But He's not going to resolve them for you just because you pray some prayer someplace. No. Friends, obedience most of the time leads down the path of suffering. Like the prophets. So as we look at their lives and see God coming through for them over and over and over again, we can expect the same for us. You've heard it said, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. You believe that? The prophets did. Those Christians of old did. One thing that may help you to be patient in trial is to remember those who are watching you to either receive encouragement or discouragement. What is it that they're receiving? What is it that your children are learning from how you are responding to your circumstances? What is it your neighbors think of Christianity if they're viewing how you're going through your challenging times? That will help you. It will help me to be more patient, to establish myself in the truth of the gospel, to not grumble. Why? Because all three of my kids are watching. Because you're watching. Just like we have watched those who've gone before us. Why do you think Hebrews 11 is in there? The, the hall of faith, the, those who have done well in following God have been listed, a few of them have been listed in Hebrews 11 for our benefit. Do you think that any of us would know who Hudson Taylor was if he had wimped out? If he had blown it? We wouldn't know Hudson Taylor from anybody else. He would be a no-name, a nobody. The reason we know Hudson Taylor is because he was faithful. He was patient. He established his heart and he didn't grumble. Same reason we know about all the biblical characters from Hebrews 11. So this is why we read the scriptures. This is why we read biographies of faithful servants who endured and even died for the cause of Christ. Because it brings great encouragement to our soul. I would encourage you to have a biography open somewhere at all times. Be reading a biography. Read the stories of the prophets. This is what Paul said about these stories in Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days, that is the, the record in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the incursion of the scriptures, we might have hope. They did it. And so can I. So can you. The use of Job here is an important one. Look at 
what he says in verse 11, Behold, we consider these blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've heard of this Job guy, right, James says? Yeah. His illustration is an important one. Because it didn't seem that Job was always patient. If you read that book, it didn't seem like he always was steadfast. In that. It seemed like he was a little bit shaky sometimes. If you read Job's interaction with his three friends, you discover that he was growing impatient. He even hinted at accusing God for his problems. But the key and the reason James uses Job as an example is knowing that Job began well and he ended well. He began well and he ended well. The point is that we may go through seasons. We may go through seasons of deep questioning, of impatience in our, in our circumstances, maybe even doubting God's goodness, His fairness, His love. But because of the perseverance of the, of the authentically saved ones, and because of the grace of God, we will turn the corner eventually like Job did. Every one of the Old Testament characters were not faultless. But they all began well and ended well. So we may, like them, question the goodness of God. We may doubt His love and kindness. But eventually, because of the faithfulness of God, we will come to our senses and embrace all that God has done for us throughout our lives, including the suffering. And I think this truth James wants us to consider because this truth brings great hope to those who are going through deep water. This truth that he who began a good work will complete it in the lives of our children who are struggling is of great encouragement. Friends, the suffering of martyrs and the suffering of those under lifelong duress are great examples to us. You know, you may not go out in a flame of glory like a missionary martyr, which, by the way, might be easier than living your life of difficulty. Your life of difficulty may include long, painful, and confusing experiences as you struggle to faithfully and patiently follow Jesus. It might be easier to take a spear to the chest. The goal is to patiently endure until Jesus returns. As a few of the, the Puritans used to say, it's only a lifetime. That's it. And then what? Starts with the, word, the letter E. Eternity. This is but a short time. This is what Paul said. This is what every generation of Christians has said. This is a light and momentary trial compared to the glory that is to come. It's only a lifetime. So smile about it. Strengthen your, your, your heart. Don't grumble. 
look at your trials and difficulties in the face and said, let's go. It says there in verse 8 that we consider blessed those who have persevered. We do, don't we? We've read about them. I've mentioned them already. Why do we consider them blessed? Because they learn to trust God and they continue to follow him in the midst of difficulty. Hardship didn't scare him away. Listen to what Job said when he was a little more clear, but he was still in the middle of his trial. Verses 25 through 27 of, verse, of chapter 19. Oh, for this attitude at all times, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. It, in other words, it rejoices within me. What an attitude. And this was when he was struggling at his darkest moment. This is our security as well. This is our foundation as well in the midst of our challenging times. William Barclay, the great theologian, said this concerning Job's life. The great fact about Job is that in spite of all his torrent of questionings and in spite of his agonizing questions which tore at his heart, he never lost his faith in God. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him Job 13, 15. My witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. Job 16, 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 19, 25. He never lost his grip on faith and his grip on God. Job's faith is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied. But the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. He began well. And he ended well, even if he didn't go through all sorts of we would call ungodly thinking in between. So we can be patient with each other when we're struggling like this, right? Maybe God has the same plan for us that he had for Job. Let's not be like Job's three friends who said, you're just a loser, Job. No. Did God rebuke them for that? Yes. Let's not be like Job's three friends who were a discouragement to him. Let's be an encouragement to one another. As James says, don't judge one another. Trust that God's doing a work in my struggling brother's life. And pray and encourage. The concluding blessings, you remember how Job's life concluded? You remember how the book of Job's concluded? <laughs> Abundant blessings. Um, those were recorded to reassure us that God will, re will more than restore anything that we have lost. Have you lost out on something because of your suffering? Have you missed something that maybe others in your life have because of your suffering? Well, listen. If God is faithful, if God is true, he will, more, he will do more than just restore what we've lost. 
he will abundantly bless us beyond what we had. Friends, we have suffered loss and we will suffer more. This is a difficult pilgrimage, but because of God's faithfulness, we can count on his abundant restoration and blessing beyond anything that we've lost. As I've already quoted this, but I'll read it again. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And by the way, this abundant restoration may not happen until you see Jesus. But that's okay. The next reason that we should respond to trials with patience and by establishing our hearts and without grumbling is because of the purpose of God. Look at verse 11 again. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord. The reason we respond in patience and establishing our hearts and not grumbling is because of God's purposes, because of God's plan. He's up to something in your life and mine. The only way that you can remain steadfast like Job, as verse 11 says, is if, is if you actually go through trial. I would love to have said it, I would love to have this said at my funeral. He was steadfast. That's it. That would be enough. Then go home. The reality is if there are no battles, there's no victories. If there are no valleys, there's no peaks. So do you want to be steadfast? The purpose of the Lord is that you would become steadfast. If you want that, then you must suffer. That's the only way there. Job didn't know what God was doing behind the scenes. Job didn't have the benefit of having his life written on paper like we have of Job. Job had to patiently suffer through his trials just like we do. But because of Job, we know that God is behind the scenes doing what is necessary to accomplish his purposes for us. Why should we be faithful in patience and establishing our heart and not grumbling? Because God is up to something. He's doing something. Impatience doesn't produce good fruit. Have you noticed that in your life? It didn't work out for Moses. Impatience, did it? He lost out on the promised land. Didn't work out for Abraham. His impatience produced at Ishmael. And his offspring, his descendants, are still paying the price for that. How has impatience ever produced any good fruit in your life? How does impatience work out uh, in traffic? How does it work out in bank lines? How does impatience work out in your home with your children or your spouse? We must practice patience by depending on God's provision of grace through the trial, believing that his plans are to make us like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, 9, three times I pleaded with the Lord, Paul said about this, that, I, that it should leave me, his thorn in the flesh. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Not in eliminating the thorn, 
power of God is made evident in the weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ will rest on me. See, Job's story brings hope for all who are suffering. In Job's story, we see the purposes of God in difficult circumstances. What are those purposes? Let me repeat a few that you probably already know that we've covered before in the sermon series of James. To test and prove faith's authenticity. That's why you have difficulty. To thwart Satan's attempt to destroy your faith. To strengthen faith and give a clear view of God. To increase the joy of the one under trial. You know why you're going through difficulties? It's because you're not happy enough. So God's going to do a, a work to bring that about. And then, of course, to conform us to the image of Jesus, Romans 8, 29. So why do we go through what we go through according to James to test and prove the authenticity of our faith, to thwart Satan's attempt to destroy our faith, to strengthen the faith and give us a clearer view of God, to increase our joy, and to conform us to the image of Jesus. That's why. So we can be patient. <laughs> we can establish our hearts, and we don't need to grumble. The third reason that we respond, we respond patiently to trials and suffering is this, the character of God. Look at verse 11. And you have seen the purposes of the Lord. At the end of the verse it says, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The reason that we can respond to our trials patiently and strengthening our hearts and without grumbling is because we believe God's character. The one who has put us into these trials is trustworthy. Many might think that it would be better for everyone if God just protected us from suffering. If God's in charge of our circumstances, why didn't he just protect me from evil and, and difficulty and trial? That way I would thank and glorify God for his protection and I would be content, maybe even happy. Well, we can praise God for protecting us from further suffering, but the point of suffering is to wean us from the world. To build up our faith, to conform us to Jesus' image, the things I just mentioned. To bring us joy. When we come out the other side of our suffering, like Job, we will rejoice in the faithfulness, compassion, mercy, and goodness of the one who put us in the trials. Job said this when he started seeing more clearly in Job 23. But God knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I will come out as gold. James repeats a well-known phrase to Bible readers when he says the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Have you heard those terms before used of God? Yes, you have. For example, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Friends, we have a God whose character is impeccable. It's perfect. We can trust him. 
when we're going through difficulty. God isn't a God who occasionally relents from his cruelty to hand a little compassion to his suffering subjects. No, God is full of compassion, the Bible says. A guiding character quality of God is his compassion towards weak humans. James, James's word here literally means, the word compassion literally means many bowled. God has many bowels. And of course, in Hebrew mind, that was the, the center of emotion. God cares deeply for you and me. He's many bowed. He is compassionate towards us. God has an enormous capacity to have compassion towards us weak human beings. And it says he's also merciful. He excels at mercy. He would much rather forgive and pardon than to judge. Which is a centerpiece of the gospel, isn't it? Simply come to Christ. He is offered free and full forgiveness if you would but come, if you'll but confess, if you but believe on the Son. He is anxious to dump mercy upon you. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's through our trials that God reveals to us his compassion and his mercy towards us specifically, us individually. So have you placed your trust in this God? Have you embraced his gospel? Have you ceased from trying to Go it on your own. Are you struggling in the gall of bitterness because of your circumstances? If so, friends, throw yourself on God. He is compassionate and merciful. He is trustworthy to do and accomplish all that he has promised. He will not leave us in the cold. Let's thank him for these things now. Oh God, our heart rejoices in these truths that James has opened to our minds this morning. Oh, that we would respond as you desire. That we would not continue in our skepticism, but that we would embrace the promises of God. That we would lean upon the Spirit who is in us, who is at work in us. Oh God, keep us from despair and, and discouragement. Help us to be on the lookout for those around us, even in this room, who might be going through a season of discouragement and darkness. Help us to be quick to run to their aid, to remind them of these wonderful truths that we've heard this morning. Father, bless this church. Bless these people here in this room. I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us. Amen.